Uh, Dan Palazzolo, I'm a professor of political science at the University of Richmond. I'm also co-director along with Terry Price of the Gary L. McDowell Institute at the Jepson uh, School of Leadership Studies. And I wanna welcome you here tonight for our, our webinar discussion uh, with Yuval Levin. Um, we at the uh, Marshall Center have taken a little bit of a break, but we do have two lectures uh, this spring and um, uh, Yuval is gonna be the first. So I'd like to ask uh, a former student and good friend, uh, Luis Perales, a graduate of the University of Richmond, a political science major and an English major, uh, who is currently uh, working at the American Enterprise Institute as an academic program associate. Luis is also the co-host of a podcast called Panorama on politics, Latinos and conservatism. And it's a great pleasure of mine to welcome Luis here and so he can introduce uh, our speaker. Thank you, Luis. Thank you so much, Professor Palazuelo, and welcome to all the spiders tuning in for today's event. Um, I'll briefly mention that I took classes with both Professor Palazuelo and Professor Kevin Cherry, who are uh, in both of the McDowell uh, Institute, and I actually attended a bunch of lectures in what was then the Marshall Center, is now the, the McDowell Institute. So I'll say that it's a, it's a privilege to be with you all here virtually, and I truly hope that more and more students make a sort of intellectual home uh, from the McDowell Institute in the years to come. Um, as Dr. Palazuelo mentioned, I'm a senior associate at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a think tank based in Washington, D.C., and it's my distinct privilege to introduce our speaker for today, one of our most distinguished scholars, uh, Dr. Yuval Levin, uh, an immigrant from Israel to New Jersey at age eight. Dr. Levin began his career as a congressional staffer on Capitol Hill before joining the President's Council on Bioethics, rising to become its executive director in the early 2000s. He was a member of the White House domestic policy staff under President George W. Bush and went on to earn his doctorate from the University of Chicago's Committee on Social Thought, where his dissertation focused on the intellectual underpinnings of the modern left and right through the writings of Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke. Dr. Levin is the editor of National Affairs, a quarterly journal on domestic policy, which just released its spring issue earlier this week and which I encourage you all to check out and his writings have appeared in the New York Times, National Review, The Atlantic, among many other outlets. And he currently serves as the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at AEI, where he also holds the Beth and Ravenel Curry Chair in Public Policy. And I want to stress that this introduction barely scratches the surface of the invaluable contributions that Dr. Levin has made both to American public policy and our uh, broader public discourse. Um, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I think especially in a time like ours, when it's so easy for politics to revert to tribalism, to cynicism. Dr. Levin challenges us to approach political life in a different way. He challenges us to approach politics with a sense of gratitude, gratitude for the many institutions in our country that work, uh, for the robust efforts of our people to improve the ones that don't work. And he offers us a genuine commitment and devotion to the valuable role that ordinary people, places, and organizations hold in taking, some for, taking on some of our most pressing issues. And these are important questions that he addresses in his most recent book, A Time to Build, which you should all read, uh, and which asks us to reimagine and recommit ourselves to the institutions that give shape to our social life and which form us not only as individuals, but more importantly, as members in a shared political community. So it is my distinct pleasure to uh, welcome you all again to the University of Richmond. You all, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Luis, uh, and thank you, Dan, and thanks to the University of Richmond for inviting me and. Uh, and for uh, putting this together. 
it's an enormous honor. I wish we could do it in person and uh, someday we will, but things being as they are, uh, it's a great pleasure to get together like this. There are a lot of subjects that we could take up together in a forum like this, um, but I thought that it would make sense to offer a sense of how I think about some of what's gone wrong in American life in recent years and what we might be able to do about it. Drawing on the book that Luis mentioned, uh, Time to Build, which was published last year, that something has gone wrong, I think is pretty clear, um, but just what it is, how to think about it, how to understand it is sometimes not nearly as easy as we think or pretend. We Americans are living through something of a social crisis. Uh, we can see that in everything from vicious partisan polarization to rampant culture war resentments to an upsurge of isolation, alienation, despair that has sent suicide rates up, that has driven an epidemic of opio opioid abuse in parts of our society. These kinds of deep dysfunctions in seemingly very different parts of our society's life seem to have some common roots. But what really are those roots? What's gone wrong fundamentally? I think part of the crisis, one of its symptoms, is that we can't always get a handle on just what that is. Traditional economic concerns don't really cut it as explanations. Obviously, the pandemic is leaving us with a serious recession and consequences that will last. But the challenges that I'm talking about did not begin with the pandemic, and they didn't really ease much during the long period of growth that we experienced over the last decade. Um, we had very low unemployment and inflation, interest rates, wages were rising. It's not that some Americans were not suffering economically, but the problems we had on that front didn't add up to the kind of crisis that we've been going through. Other familiar measures of well-being around health or safety or opportunity don't really offer obvious explanations either. So what really have we been complaining about? There's some people who actually argue that there isn't anything to complain about or that the frustration and anxiety that seem to overwhelm our politics now are rooted in imaginary grievances and so that they themselves are the problem. Steven Pinker of Harvard takes these kinds of complaints to be just irritable gestures of self-indulgence and ingratitude. Um, in, in a recent book of his, he reviews mountains of data on wealth and health and safety and choice, and he concludes that populist complaints on all sides of our politics are detached from reality. And they're dangerous too. He says, quote, indiscriminate pessimism can lead to fatalism, to wondering why we should throw our time and money at a hopeless cause. And it can lead to radicalism, to calls to smash the machine and drain the swamp or empower a charismatic tyrant, end quote. But surely public frustrations of the level that we've seen are not just some kind of self-delusion, especially frustrations that run so deep and that have revealed themselves in such a broad range of symptoms. Pinker's happy data are not wrong and neither are the encouraging economic indicators that uh, we've had over the last decade. But if these don't explain the reigning sentiments of our time, then we should ask ourselves what those kinds of indicators might ignore. And so what signs we might be missing. Our usual measures of wealth and health and personal freedom don't quite explain the problem because those familiar indicators important as they are, are largely material and individual. They assess our well-being on our own, but none of us can actually experience well-being on our own. It's, it's in the joints of society, it's at the junctures of individuals that the trouble really shows itself. So one way to put that point is that many of our struggles seem rooted in relational problems, loneliness and isolation, mistrust, suspicion, alienation, polarization. These are the characteristic sorts of problems we have now. And they're failures of sociality at some level. 
so they can fall into a blind spot for our individualist culture. And so how do we explain a crisis of connectedness? Some people argue that the trouble is philosophical or metaphysical, that liberalism has failed because it fails to offer us a sufficient vocabulary of, of solidarity or an architecture for it. Other people say that although traditional measures of growth and prosperity look fine, the problem still is economic in a deeper sense. It's socioeconomic. They say that contemporary capitalism creates levels of inequality that make it impossible for people to feel like equal parts of a larger whole or to believe in the legitimacy of our political and economic order. Others say that external pressures like trade or immigration or internal pressures like racism or identity politics have left us unable to hang together. There's surely some truth to each of these explanations. They all get at something important because they all treat the human person as embedded in a larger whole, whether that's metaphysical or moral or social or economic. And they see that what's wrong has to do with the way in which we now live out that embeddedness. But I think they still all miss something crucial. When we think about our problems in these ways, we tend to imagine our society as a vast open space that's filled with people who are having trouble linking hands. And so we talk about breaking down walls or building bridges or leveling playing fields but there's a missing step between joining together and recovering belonging and trust and legitimacy. What we're missing, although we too rarely really put it this way, is not just connectedness, but a structure of social life, a way to give shape and purpose and concrete meaning and identity to the things we do together. And if American life is a big open space, it's not just a space filled with individuals, it's a space filled with these structures of social life. It's a space filled with institutions. And if we're too often failing to foster belonging and legitimacy and trust, then more than just a failure of connection, we confront a failure of institutions in a variety of ways. Institutions do more than just connect us. And understanding our social crisis in terms of what they are and what they do could help us to see that crisis in a new light. That's really the understanding that the book tries to advance. So what is an institution? It won't surprise you to learn that there are a lot of different academic definitions of that term. Uh, the book thinks through a number of them, but for our purposes here, let me suggest a general definition that draws together a lot of that academic work, but also looks to the problems that we confront in our society now. By institutions, I mean the durable forms of our common life. They are the shapes and structures of what we do together. Some institutions are organizations. They have something like a corporate form, a university, a hospital, a school, a business, a civic association, these are all institutions. They're technically and legally formalized. Some institutions are durable forms of a different sort. They may be shaped by laws or norms or rules, but without that kind of corporate structure. The family is an institution. It's the first and foremost institution of every, of every society. We can speak of the institution of marriage or of a particular tradition or profession as an institution. The rule of law is an institution. That they're durable is essential. An institution keeps its general shape over time. And so it shapes the realm of life in which it operates. It usually changes gradually and incrementally. Flash mobs are not institutions. But most important, what's distinct about an institution is that it is a form in the deepest sense. A form is a structure, a contour. It's the shape of the whole. The organization that speaks of its purpose, its logic, its function and meaning. A social form, an institution, is not just a bunch of people. It's a bunch of people ordered together to achieve a purpose, pursue a goal, advance an ideal, 
And that means that institutions are also by their nature formative. They structure our interactions. And as a result, they structure us. They shape our habits, our expectations, and ultimately they shape our character and our soul. They help to form us. And that formative role actually has a lot to do with how institutions relate to the kind of social crisis that we've been living through. So let me say a word about how that works. When we think about the role of institutions in American life now, we might tend to think first in terms of our loss of trust or confidence in institutions. That's a trend that we hear a lot about. It's a kind of cliche by now. Americans don't trust institutions. Measures of that are very easy to find and they paint a really grim picture. Gallup has kept track of what it calls Americans' confidence in institutions for decades. Usually the data starts in 1973 and goes through the present. And the trend in those figures is just unmistakable from big business and banks and the professions to the branches of the federal government, the news media, the academy. It's found that confidence in our institutions has been plummeting pretty consistently. In the early 1970s, 80% of Americans said that they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in doctors and hospitals, for instance. Last year, that figure was 37%. 40 years ago, 65% of Americans said they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in organized religion. Last year, that figure was just about 40%. 60% expressed confidence in the public schools back then. Well, just about a third of Americans did so last year. Even in 1975, so a year after Richard Nixon resigned in disgrace, 52% of Americans said they had confidence in the presidency. Last year, 32% did. Gallup even found, most amazingly to me really, that 42% of the public had confidence in Congress in the 1970s. Last year, that figure was 12%. And really, even that seems high most of the time. You sort of have to wonder who these people really are. That, that pattern holds for just about all of the institutions that Gallup asked about. The, the military is the only major exception, and we'll think a little bit about why that is. But the overall trend is really unmistakable. The American public has gone from having extraordinary levels of confidence in our institutions to striking levels of mistrust. But what do we actually mean when we say we don't trust institutions? I think the answer to that has a lot to do with what institutions really are and do. And it takes us back to that question of how they form us. Every significant institution in society carries out some important task or purpose maybe educating children or enforcing the law or serving the poor or just providing some service, making some product, meeting some need. And it does that by establishing a structure and a process, a form for combining people's efforts toward accomplishing that goal. In the process, the institution also forms those people to carry out that work effectively, responsibly, reliably. It shapes the people within it to be trustworthy. That's what it means to trust an institution. We trust an institution when it seems to have an ethic that makes the people within it more trustworthy. So we might trust a political institution if it seems to take seriously some obligation to the public interest and to form the people in it to do the same. We trust the military because it values courage and honor and duty in carrying out the defense of the nation. And it clearly shapes men and women who take those things very seriously. We trust a business if it promises quality and integrity and in meeting some need that we have and seems to reward its people when they deliver those. Maybe we trust a school because it builds a culture that makes its people devoted to learning and teaching. We trust a journalistic institution because it has high standards of honesty and accuracy in reporting the news and that makes the work of its people reliable. 
And we lose faith in an institution when we no longer believe that it plays that kind of ethical or formative role, shaping the people in it to be trustworthy. One way that can happen is when institutions claim to enforce an ethic of responsibility, but just plainly fail to do that, and instead end up shielding or empowering bad behavior. When a bank cheats its customers, when a member of the clergy abuses a child, we obviously lose trust in the institution. That kind of gross abuse of power obviously undermines public trust. It's a familiar form of corruption, but it's not new. There are forms of it, plenty of them in our time, but there are lots of examples of it in every time. So it doesn't quite explain the distinctive loss of confidence in institutions in our day. Another related but different way in which an institution can lose our trust though, is when it simply fails to impose an ethic on the people within it altogether, and doesn't even seem to see that kind of formation as its purpose. When the people in that institution no longer really look at it as a mold of their character and behavior, but just see it as a platform for themselves to perform on, to raise their profiles, to be seen. An institution like that seems not to be worthy of our trust, not because it's failed to earn it, but because it doesn't even really ask for it, doesn't even seem to want it. And something like that is what has been happening to a lot of our institutions in recent decades in particular. When we don't think of our institutions as formative, but as performative, when the presidency and Congress are just stages for performative outrage, when a university becomes just a venue for virtue signaling, when journalism is indistinguishable from activism, when the church becomes just a political stage, they become harder to trust. They aren't really asking for our trust. They're just asking for our attention. And in our time, a lot of the most significant social and political and cultural and intellectual institutions are in the process of going through that kind of transformation from mold to platform. The few exceptions, again, most notably the military, which is the most unabashedly formative of our national institutions, tend to prove that rule because they tend to be the few institutions in which we are not losing trust. And many of the genuinely novel institutions of the 21st century, maybe especially the virtual institutions of social media, are inherently shaped as platforms and not as molds. And it would be strange to trust a platform, and we usually don't. That change of attitude, that decline in the expectation that our institutions should be formative, is at the heart of our loss of faith in institutions. And it's in turn at the heart of our, our broader social crisis too, because institutions understood as platforms rather than as molds, as stages to perform on more than as means to form and shape our character, are less able to offer us objects of loyalty, sources of legitimacy, means of building mutual trust. Examples of that kind of transformation from mold to platform are really just everywhere around us now. And in a lot of cases, our institutions are being made into platforms, not just for any performance, but for performative virtue and performative outrage in that vast polarized culture war that we all have to live with in one way or another. In one institution after another, we find people who ought to think of themselves as insiders, shaped by the distinct purpose and integrity of the institution, instead functioning as outsiders, displaying themselves, building their own personal brand. That's obvious in politics, right? Is there any doubt, for example, that former President Trump saw the presidency as a stage for performative outrage and saw himself fundamentally as a performer acting on it rather than as an executive acting through it? Is there any question that a lot of members of Congress now run for office less to be involved in legislative work 
and more to have a prominent platform in the culture war to become more visible on cable news, on talk radio, to build a social media following, to use their elected office mostly as a platform and often to complain about the very institution that they worked so hard to enter. To, they see that as what their voters want and they're always performing for that core partisan audience. Are the two major political parties now really anything other than two platforms for performance? Do they have a function other than displaying and elevating narcissists at this point? Do we even remember really what the role of the political party is actually supposed to be? We can look beyond politics too. Think about the profession of journalism as an example. It's institutional strength is its insistence on a formative integrity, on a process of editing and verification that helps us to be more sure that what it provides is reliable. But today, a lot of elite journalists are constantly stepping outside of those institutional constraints and addressing the public directly on social media, on cable news, building their own personal brands on a platform rather than participating in the work of institutions. If you check in on Twitter right now, you'd find a lot of professional reporters basically deprofessionalizing themselves. Journalists who are inclined to complain about how Donald Trump behaved in, in the presidency should consider whether Trump's behavior relative to what the presidency is supposed to be might have been just unnervingly similar to the behavior of a lot of leading political reporters relative to what journalism is supposed to be. They're both playing out a kind of self-indulgent celebrity version of the real thing. And in both cases, that makes it much harder for them to really engage in the real thing, to do their essential work. You can see that same pattern in the academy in some cases, rather than serving the institutional purpose of the university, which is to form some portion of the rising generation through teaching and learning, you find a lot of people in the university using the institution as a platform for virtue signaling, for political and culture war theatrics. There's a version of that in some portions of American religion now where institutions that exist to form and transform souls are being used instead as platforms for political theater, for culture war drama, so that the cachet of the church is used less to form those in it than to let them express themselves. We can see that pattern throughout American life. That distortion of institutionalism amounts in practical terms to the great unasked question of our time. Given my role here, how should I behave? That's what someone who takes an institution they're involved with seriously would ask. And a lot of the trouble facing our core institutions now might be described as a very widespread failure to ask that question. Given my role here, how should I behave? As a president or a member of Congress, as a teacher or a scientist or a pastor or a worker or a parent or a neighbor, what should I be doing here? I would bet that the people who you most respect these days seem to ask that kind of question before they make important judgments. And I would bet that the people who most drive you crazy, who you most think are part of the problem, seem to fail to ask that kind of question when they really obviously should. That's one way to understand the transformation of our expectations of institutions, which has a lot to do with the broader set of problems that we've been dealing with. That transformation has left a lot of Americans with a sense that our institutions cannot be trusted that they aren't in the business of earning trust. And that's left us short of sources of formation, belonging, legitimacy, social cohesion. That problem doesn't simply explain the social crisis that we're living through, but it's one of the most important factors behind that crisis. And one, one that we're particularly likely to miss or to ignore because we aren't very good at seeing institutions at really grasping what they're for. So what can we do about it? 
obviously there's no simple answer to that kind of question. There's no policy agenda that just gives us a to-do list. But I think that dealing with this kind of problem requires to begin with a change of mindset. Witnessing failures of responsibility in so many of our institutions, we're tempted to a disposition to just demolish and uproot. And we're tempted to conclude that only outsiders can save us. That's why so much of the energy of our politics now is spent tearing down supposedly powerful establishments. But in fact, we don't need more outsiders who pretend that they're just critics with no power to act. We need more insiders, institutionalists who will be earnest both in their efforts to build frameworks for common action and in their acceptance of the responsibilities, the duties that accompany power. Those in our society who have the most power, our leaders, our elites, need especially to resist the urge to pretend that they are outsiders, as so many of them are inclined to do now. But everyone else does too. Instead, we should all try to embrace the responsibilities that come with whatever positions we might hold in our lives. And we should ensure that obligations and restraints actually restrain us, and in that process also protect and empower us. We need to inhabit the institutions that we each are part of, to love them really, to, and when necessary, to reform them to help make them more lovely for other people too. We need to understand ourselves as formed by these institutions and to act accordingly, to ask ourselves in those little moments of decision, not just what do I want, not just how do I wanna be seen, but what should I do here given my role, given my position, given my relationship to other people in this institution, my responsibility. Questions like those seem like an awfully small response to the enormous sorts of social problems that I started with. And of course, they're only a start but they're how we can begin to work toward a change of mindset. And they can add up, they can make a difference. If our leaders asked them a little bit more often, our politics would be improved a lot. If professionals in a lot of fields thought this way just a little more, it would be easier to trust their expertise and so to accept their claims to authority. If the people who participate in all the institutions that we're part of tried to think this way a little more, it would be easier to feel like we belong to something worthwhile. That sort of change of mindset is not a substitute for institutional reform, but it's an essential prerequisite for it. And we do need institutional reform. I wanna be clear that I don't think the problem to be solved is that people don't trust institutions. The problem to be solved is that our institutions are not trustworthy enough. It's also important to recognize that there are some serious reasons to be careful and skeptical about institutions. There are obviously many ways in which institutions can be oppressive. Right? They limit our freedom of choice, they impose hierarchies on us, they can be slow to change, they can be hard to move. And more than that, there's some institutions in our society that can be literally oppressive. The, the term institutionalized racism, for example, is not a metaphor in America, it's very real. The disposition against strong institutions arose for serious reasons. And the arguments for transparency, for individualism, for populism emerged as correctives to excessively rigid and imperious institutionalism. Worries like that are serious and they need to be heeded, but we have to see that populism and individualism also involve serious trade-offs themselves. Institutions can be terribly oppressive, but we can't actually do without them. It's true that they can sometimes reinforce the rule of the strong or the privileged in some situations, but it's also true that without functional institutions, the weak in our society have no hope of vindicating their rights. Our institutions sometimes have embodied oppression without question, but they can also embody our highest ideals. To defend institutions is not to defend the status quo or the strong or the privileged. Functional institutions are actually most important 
for people who don't have power or privilege. And though our institutions can become cold and bureaucratic, they are essential to our acting on our warmest sentiments. Without them, we grow isolated, we grow alienated, we grow disillusioned, and we have. This is the irony that we face in a moment like this in America. The failures of our institutions have led us to demand that they be uprooted or demolished, but we can't address those failures without renewing or rebuilding those very institutions. It makes sense to resist the excesses of institutional strength, but our problems today are much more like excesses of institutional weakness. And so they require recommitment and reform rather than just resentment. And I say recommitment and reform in that order because our attitude has to change first. The book gets into some structural and institutional reforms that could help some of the particular institutions that I talk about, Congress, the political parties, the professions, the academy, religious life. But the common denominator when it comes to those kinds of reforms is that the people in those institutions have to want them to happen. And that means that they have to first see the ways in which they now are part of the problem and the ways in which some of how they're behaving has to change. And that by making key institutions impossible to trust, we've been contributing to a profound and destructive set of social dysfunctions in America. In one arena of American life after another, we now face the challenge of drawing alienated people back into institutions. And we can point to all kinds of complicated theories about how to build the trust that's required to accomplish that. But the simplest way is for the people who inhabit our institutions, that is for all of us, to be more trustworthy. And that's something that we each can work at to some degree. We can give our institutional responsibilities some more of our time and effort. We can give them more of our identity and our self-consciousness. We can understand ourselves as defined by the institutions that matter more to us. We can judge ourselves by their standards. We can hold ourselves up to their ideals, take seriously <clears throat> their particular forms of integrity and try to align our pride or ambition with theirs a little bit more. And we can work to reform them where they're failing to help them work better, be more worthy of confidence. We can yearn not just for the formless autonomy of the independent contractor, but for the rootedness and the responsibility of the member and the partner and the worker and the owner and the citizen. There is a word for attitudes like that. The word is devotion. We're, what's required of, of each of us now <clears throat> is greater devotion to the work we do together in the service of common aspirations, and therefore greater devotions to the institutions that we compose and inhabit. That kind of devotion calls for some sacrifice and for commitment. It calls on each of us to pledge ourselves to some institution that we belong to unabashedly, to abandon ironic distance or dispassionate analysis and really jump in. And that kind of devotion is not only necessary, it's actually very attractive now. We want objects of devotion. We want something to commit to, but we often don't see that what we're looking for is right within our reach. It's easy to be fashionable rebels in this moment. It's harder to remind ourselves why our core commitments are worthwhile. That's the kind of case that institutionalism involves now, and that's why it's so crucial. What I'm proposing here, in other words, is a modest change in our stance toward our country and toward the sort of social crisis that it confronts. Not a social revolution or a political transformation, at least not directly, not to begin with, just a greater awareness of how integrity and trust and confidence and belonging and meaning are established in our lives. And so a greater care about some habits that we've gotten into that tend to cut us off from those. Thinking and speaking even just a little differently about how we live together can make a bigger difference than you might imagine. It can help us see what we've been missing, 
to do what we've been neglecting, to say what we've only assumed or taken for granted. And small steps like that are what make great changes possible. They're constructive. And so they build on each other and they turn all of us into builders. And that in the end is really the character of the transformation that we need. The demolition crews have been allowed for too long to define the spirit of this era in America. But where we're headed is ultimately up to the builders and the rebuilders. And that's what each of us should seek to be. So I'll end there. Thank you, Yuval. It was really an excellent summary of your, your book. And I hope every, everyone has a chance to, to get a copy and, and read it and talk with others about it. Uh, we have some time for questions. And if you are interested, you can enter a question into the Q&A function at the bottom of the screen. We already have uh, one question, uh, Yuval, and I'll direct it to you. Um, you write about how institutions are needed at times to constrain us. Some institutional constraints are clearly beneficial, while others seem to violate our basic human right to autonomy. How do we reconcile the tension between institutional constraints and autonomy, or does there have to be a tension at all? Yeah, that's a really wonderful question. And I, I think there does, there is necessarily a tension there. I put it this way, our kind of society, a liberal society, a free society, begins from two kinds of, of anthropological premises, premises about the human person. They're both true, but our intention with one another is a practical matter. On the one hand, we begin from the premise that every human being starts out, maybe you'd say fallen, imperfect, uh, in need of, of improvement, formation, in need of some kind of shaping before we're ready really to be free. On the other hand, we begin from the premise that every human person is maybe we would say formed in a divine image in my particular tradition, or maybe we would just say uh, endowed with certain inalienable rights. Um, every person has a basic equal dignity that entitles that person to, to basic rights that often amount to constraints on what the larger society can do to that person. The first premise calls for strong, formative social institutions. We need them or else we can't be free. The second premise calls for basic rights that involve constraints on what other people can do to us. There's obviously a tension between these things and our society lives in that tension. That's what makes it a free society. And it's really, it's why a lot of our debates have the shape that they have. Oftentimes we are struggling between these two things, between the need for formation and constraint and the need for freedom and, and, and liberty and equality. There are times in our national life when our society presses too hard on us, constrains us too much, forces us into a kind of constriction and conformity. Look at American culture in the, in the middle of the 1950s, for example, and you find a culture that is screaming for liberation from conformity. It's a culture with a lot of cohesion, a lot of confidence too in itself and its institutions, but everything about it was screaming for liberation. And I don't just mean on the left, and I don't just mean the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the James Dean character in the culture. Read the opening editorial of National Review, 1955, the, the flagship magazine of the American right. And we, we, if we know that editorial, it's because it, it used the term standing athwart history, yelling stop to, to describe conservatism. Most of it is devoted to an argument against conformity, um, against bigness, against centralization. 
look at the sermons of Martin Luther King Jr. in the early 1950s, before the real flowering of the modern civil rights movement, a lot of those are about an argument against bigness and conformity and constriction. Our culture was screaming for liberation and it got it. It, 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 it liberated itself um, and, and turned hard in the direction of individualism and liberty. And we had for half a century a politics in which the two parties were arguing about who owns the term liberty, who gets to define individual liberty. I think we're now at a point when our culture is screaming for solidarity for some kind of cohesion, for something to hold it together, for something to belong to. We still believe in liberty by all means, but alongside it, we are also asking for forms of solidarity. And the left and right today are both struggling to find those. They're still doing it pretty crudely, I think, and in ways that are rather ugly, but that's what they're working for. Um, and so I think we're in a moment now when what's required are ways of enabling our institutions to recover their integrity and to constrain us in constructive ways again, but not to the exclusion of liberty. Um, we've gone too far in one direction and are pushing back. The tension between these two things as described in the question is simply a description of our society. And I, I think at any point you'll find our society having pushed too hard in one of those directions and struggling with itself over how to regain that balance. Good. We have a couple of a couple of questions. I'll try to get to as many as as I can. Um, this one's about Joe Biden. Um, Biden has been lauded and criticized as an insider or institutionalist. Have the first two months of his presidency proved these observers correct, or has Biden been guilty of using the presidential institution as a platform? Yeah, you know, I, I would say in thinking about President Biden, it, it, it's obviously too early to describe his presidency. Um, it's only begun. But I do think that, that Biden differs starkly from Donald Trump in that he is operating more as an insider, understands himself more as, as working within the system. And he's been shaped by that system probably more than any president we've had in modern times because he spent his entire adult life um, in the US Congress and then as vice president. Um, I say that's a stark departure from the last president because Donald Trump, unlike any of our previous presidents, had spent no time in the system before he became president. He had not been formed by it at all. He had held no prior office. He had not been a, a senior officer in the military. And all of our presidents had been one of those things before they became president. And so I think that Trump was an outsider to an unusual extent. And Biden is probably an insider to an unusual extent, though we'll see. Um, I do think he's been somewhat reticent to use the presidency as a platform. He's not put himself out there constantly. He's not on Twitter really in, in his individual capacity at all. Um, he's, he's not really had a press conference. Um, and so he's certainly thinking differently about the nature of the office. I would think very much in response to what we saw in the last presidency. Um, we'll see. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that he will completely avoid that temptation. No modern president really has. But I do think his desire to resist it is promising. Um, at the same time, I think what we see in Congress at this moment is basically the continuing transformation of that institution into a platform. And we're going to need the kind of resistance to that from people inside the institution um, that maybe we're seeing in the presidency. We're going to need to see that in Congress if the system as a whole is going to recover itself. Uh, the next question is, is also about insider 
versus outsider. And you talked a little bit about it in your address, but maybe elaborate a little bit. Two-part question. With regard to rebuilding institutions, would the burden on doing the rebuilding fall on people currently within them? Or is it the job to bring new people to do the rebuilding? What place, if any, do people outside of institutions have in that rebuilding process? Yeah. Well, th th that's a very good question. And I think the answer is both. I mean, there is certainly a responsibility that falls on people with power in our institutions to recognize the need for change. But I think they're not just going to recognize it on their own. And there has to be some pressure applied. And often that pressure has to be applied from the outside. Obviously, this is going to look different in different institutions. Um, and, you know, who has leverage, right? Who are they going to listen to is going to, is going to differ in different institutions. Uh, very often it is insiders who have leverage. It is people who have some pull, have some say, you know, in a university, maybe it, it, it could come in part from the faculty, but it could come in part from trustees and parents and students. And these are a mix of insiders and outsiders. Um, I think that if, if we're thinking about our politics, um, the question of insider and outsider becomes more complicated. Citizens are not are not outsiders, right? They're 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 engaged in self-government, but they're not working within our institutions. They're not the political professionals. And I think there is a need for a recognition of the necessity of change among insiders in our politics. It very often that need has to be made apparent to them by outsiders, by voters, but also by competitors. Uh, I would say one thing that's really obviously necessary in our political life now is something like a generational transition. The people who are in power in a lot of our political institutions are unusually elderly. Um, the president is 78, his predecessor was 74, the speaker of the house is 80, the majority leader of the Senate is 72, the Republican leader is 78. Th that's actually really strange. Um, and it, it's not something that we should take as a norm. And I would say also, it's not just that older people have power. And so now these are the older people, so they have power. This same generation of leaders has actually been in power for an unusually long time. Um, you, you know, you, you think about Donald Trump uh, is an early baby boomer. He was born in June of 1946. George W. Bush was born in July of 1946. Um, Bill Clinton born in August of 1946. A lot of the people who run a lot of our institutions in, in the last generation have basically come from that moment of the end of the Second World War. There are a few exceptions, um, but most of those are also baby boomers. They're just a little younger. And there, there's a price we pay for a, a generation hanging on that long. I, I don't want to be misunderstood. I wish them all long lives and good health. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I think there is really a need for some generational pressure um, that could see American life from a somewhat different perspective. Because one of the ways that we pay a price for elderly leaders is that our politics is not sufficiently attuned to the needs of the future. We don't talk very much about the future in American politics. You think about the election we just had last year, it wasn't really about what America is going to need, say, in 2040, right? It was run by people who, to whom 2040 seems just impossibly far away. 2040 is as close to us as, as what, as 2001. Um, that's not that long ago. And we need to be able to understand, to imagine an America existing in that moment and to build for it and to think for it. And I think that that's the kind of change that has to happen in our politics now, at least in part, that has to be some kind of a generational transition. 
Well, I know the university plays an important role in your book, and so I want to turn to a couple of questions that relate to university, uh, university uh, politics, or or university of universities as a formative institution. This is a long question, but it's an important one. There was a higher education article recently about an institution where a faculty member rose to the presidency, replacing an externally appointed and beleaguered president. The faculty member who wrote the article was frustrated that this peer, now a president, was being ostracized by his own former peers. He'd gone on the dark side, de facto bad. Do you have any advice for higher education where there seems to be entrenched faculty administrative divides when we all should serve and love the same institution? How do these roles reconcile their differences? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. You know, the university is a very unusual institution. Um, it has roots that reach back in its Western form to medieval Europe. Um, and all the way back to those roots, it has been something like a self-governing institution. Um, the, the idea has always been that it is a, that it is a kind of project of the faculty and that the faculty runs the institution and has an unusual amount of independence. Um, that largely has been maintained until fairly recently in the United States. And I think in the last few decades, there has been a, a kind of transformation of university life where a lot of the faculty has become more like, uh, more like employees and even just kind of temporary contract employees, people with less of a stake in the institution. They're less vested. They're also less protected, right? There is this strange institution of tenure, which is kind of hard to explain to anybody. Um, but tenure has a lot to do with the self-governing character of the university, as well as a lot to do with the peculiar sort of intellectual freedom that should exist in the university. I think our universities have begun to become more like commercial institutions um, they gain something by that. They gain certain kinds of economic efficiencies, and it's been happening a, a lot of the time for economic reasons and out of economic pressures. But they also lose something by that. And part of what they lose is what this question gets at, which is that in the university, as traditionally understood, the faculty had an administrative role. And the boundary between administration and faculty was not a hard boundary. Um, that has been changing, I think, really quite dramatically in the American university in, in, in recent times. And part of what it has meant is that the, the, the fundamental academic ethic, the ethic of teaching and learning has seeped out some of academic administration. And administration has become more driven by, on the one hand, an ethic of, uh, of economic efficiency. And I think on the other hand, but in a, in a weirdly related way by a kind of ethic of, of identity politics that has been used as an administrative method, as a form of using power. Um, it, it's an under-examined story, and I think peculiarly so, because, you know, academics think about themselves a lot. Um, there, there, is a, there is a huge literature about the academy, and yet I think we have not really come to terms with how academic administration has been transformed in the United States in, in this century. And this question gets at a lot of that. I think some recovery of, of an understanding of the university as a self-governing institution is really essential to the recovery of the academic ethic and to the recovery of, of academic freedom 
there is, you know, there's a struggle about academic freedom now. It's a kind of left-right struggle. And in that struggle, the right tends to argue for, for or at least in terms of freedom of speech, freedom of expression. I think that's actually a little confused. The university, is not, its purpose is not freedom of expression. The university is not just a place where you should be able to say anything. Um, that would really be to understand the university as a, as a platform, as just a place to stand and yell. And that's not really what, what, what is defended by the defenders of the academic ethic. But the university does need to be a place that sees its fundamental function as teaching and learning. And that's the argument for academic freedom. It's an argument that is hard to make in contemporary politics and in contemporary economic terms, but that absolutely has to be made outside of the terms of the culture war, outside of left-right terms. The university needs a party of its own, a party of the university that will defend the academic ethic rather than defending party interests. That's obviously very hard. And I, I don't imagine that, uh, that simply seeing that need could, could show us how to achieve it. But I think that's the challenge now. And, and one of the ways we can see that is through this peculiar tension that the question nicely raises. Okay, uh, you referenced institutional racism and acknowledge its existence. Uh, there's been mm -hmm. tremendous media coverage about racism in America recently. What do you think we need to do as a society to address this issue in a meaningful way that moves beyond simply constant chatter? Well, I, I of course wish I had a simple answer to that question, um, and, and I don't. But first of all, obviously we have to acknowledge the reality. Um, I, and and I, I think it's just, there's no way to, to look at American history and, and the American present and not see the reality of, of institutional racism. But we also have to see the reality of a long-standing struggle against racism in American life. I think that there is now a, 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 a dangerous tendency to choose one or the other, to think about American life and American history, either as telling a story of, uh, of, of unceasing, unremitting institutional racism, or as telling a story of a society that has risen up from racist roots and put all that behind it and now doesn't need to worry about that anymore. But that's simply not true. The tension between those two, a society that is struggling with racism now and, in, and throughout its history is who we are. And there's a lot to draw on in telling that story to the rising generation. It has to be acknowledged that there's a very dark side to that story and that it's still with us. It's not a thing of the past. It also has to be acknowledged that there are a lot of examples and instances and resources for us to draw on in our own history for helping us fight against racism now and for helping us fight for human equality and for human dignity and for the highest ideals of our society. That story is there in our history and is a reason why we should not abandon our history. But the, the, the story of racial injustice is also there and cannot be ignored or uh, or, or denied, or else we would be lying to our children. And that, that's no way to raise decent people. So I, I think the challenge is really to see both of those sides. For that reason, I don't think that things like the 1619 Project or efforts to deny the reality of the struggle against racism in our history do us any favors. I think they deny us the best of who we are and therefore make it impossible for us to become better. But 
it's also crucially important that as we tell our own history, we tell a full history. Um, and that means coming to terms with our past. And, you know, a society is always its entire history. It is a living organism over time. And that means that we can't simply say that the sins of the past are left in the past. Um, they are with us. They are us. Um, here's a, a question that, that I sort of expected. We, we talked about it a little bit before, and it, it kind of gets to what you were just talking about. So I want to ask it, and if you need me to clarify it, I'll do the best I can. University of Richmond is currently in a moment of student backlash against the administration. And as I mentioned to you before, it had something, at least in part, has to do with uh, naming of, of buildings. Um, how can students best preserve the campus institution while promoting its improvement? Yeah, you know, I think the most important word of that question is how. That is, the, the question isn't really whether to engage in this debate or not, but how. And it really matters that this be done in a way that begins from the premise that there is something to be celebrated and appreciated about the institution, but also something to be changed about it. Um, that means that an effort for reform can't be antinomian. It can't be, it can't be an effort that arises against the institution in rejection of it, but rather has to say, we're better than this. The best of who we are would look a little different than we look right now. I think that kind of process could certainly end in a change of the name of building. I mean, that may be the right thing to do. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm an outsider here and I don't know the, the details well enough to, to say where I would come down, but th there certainly are uh, names I would change in our society um, for reasons of our past, of not wanting to celebrate the wrong things about our past. But I, I think it's important that that be done in a way that acknowledges that we are trying to live up to our best selves rather than that we seek to reject who we've been to become something else. And that difference can sound subtle, but it's not subtle. I think it is really about ultimately whether the debate happens in a way that draws us in together and helps us understand ourselves as part of something together or whether it draws lines and tries to push people away and is fundamentally rejectionist. It's hard, it's hard to sustain that balance when what you want is change. Um, it, it's not a simple matter, but I, I think it's worth being attuned to the how. Thank you. Uh, this shifts a little bit over to the, to the culture wars. Uh, for what reason is it clear that culture, say cultural ideas, counts more than it ever did? So you know, people thinking rationally that they must influence culture and being institutional really can't, can't do it, they can't achieve it. Um, and is this an institutional and an anti-institutional attitude inevitable? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I don't know that I would say culture is counted for, it, it counts for more than it ever did. Um, culture is always what counts most. Um, you know, culture is the environment in which we live, it's the air we breathe and I think we have to think in terms of shaping culture when we think in terms of how we live together. Um, now, I would say that there, there's, there's a strong tendency in the American character 
to think about those kinds of questions and to think about culture in non-institutional or anti-institutional terms. I think it's a tendency that goes all the way back to the roots of our culture in a kind of, um, in a kind of dissenting Protestantism that wanted to push off the constraints of intensely institutionalized religion, uh, Catholicism, but also the, the established Anglican church and that therefore had a very individualistic definition of, of authenticity um, and in a sense understands freedom and legitimacy in, in anti-institutional terms. We, we easily go too far in that direction. And I think we tend often to identify our culture with that spirit to a very great degree. Um, and so, you know, in, in that sense, the, the project I'm advancing here pushes against the runs against the grain of our culture. Um, but it is still a cultural project. It is about how we shape the environment in which we're going to live together. And, you know, I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's an alternative to, to understanding the deepest questions we face as cultural questions. In that sense, culture war is the only war, right? But um, th that doesn't mean that we that we can't engage on these questions in a constructive way, in a way that brings us together. I, I would say that what we lack for in American life now are ways of debating and disagreeing with each other. And that we, it's not that we have too much disagreement. It's almost that we have too little disagreement. It's not that we have these two parties who are constantly at, at each other's throats. We have these two parties who each withdraws into itself to talk about the other in private. And we need more venues where they can talk to each other about problems that our entire society confronts. That's, what, that's why we need a diversity of views in the university. That's why we need a functional legislature. That's why we need uh, a, a culture that takes its institutions more seriously. Uh, in some ways, I think that's really an excellent way to, to end our session. We do have several other questions. And, and what I think we've done in the past is um, if, if those who haven't had their question answered yet could send me an email um, and I can direct them to our speaker, uh, Dr. Levin. Uh, my email is, is easily, easily uh, is easy to get to at the University of Richmond. Um, it's D-P-A-L-A. ZZO at richmond.edu. And again, if you didn't get all that jumble of letters, uh, you can easily find me uh, at the University of Richmond. Uh, Yuval, I want to thank you for spending time with us this evening. It was thank really you very an much. outstanding set of remarks and um, a great question and answer period. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to plug our next event, which is coming up on April the 14th uh, at the McDowell Institute. And it's going to be about the leadership of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, it's going to be a conversation with the uh, authorized biographer of Margaret Thatcher, Sir Charles Moore. That'll be on April 14th. Uh, please look out for that. Uh, and perhaps we'll see you then. You've all, thank you. Thank you again and have thank a great you. evening, everyone.